You are listening to Seattle Growth Podcast, available free on iTunes. That's the voice of today's guest, Marco Collins, an influential radio DJ who played a key role during an iconic time in Seattle's music history, the 1990s. I am Jeff Shulman, and this fourth season of Seattle Growth Podcast is bringing you unique insight into the past, present, and future of Seattle's music scene. This episode continues its focus on an era in which America's ears were tuned in to the music emanating from our city. The episode features singer-songwriter Ben London, who began his Seattle career while the Seattle sound, known as grunge, was exploding nationally. It was really interesting, you know, that you'd be at the Crocodile on a Saturday night seeing a show with just hanging out with your friends, and then like a month later a mag- music magazine would come out and there'd be like a two-page spread of pictures of people hanging out at the Crocodile. The episode also features Marco Collins, an influential radio DJ during the early 1990s, who record executives from around the world turned to for insight into who would be the next big thing in music. Something massive is going on, and we had no idea until we saw that performance. It was just this, this is larger than life, and these are our friends. In last week's episode, you heard what it was like to be living in Seattle as a musician on the cusp of selling millions of records. Jason Finn, drummer for the twice Grammy-nominated band Presidents of the United States of America, shared his perspective in an in-depth interview. That was a very sort of more organically fun year for for me and for for us as a band. Uh, um, I lived in a a sort of grunge rocker group house down on East Lake, right, right, uh, right off of East Lake. You also heard what it felt like to be a music lover in Seattle during the 1990s from Daryl Ducharme, host of the Seattle After Party podcast. There was so much energy. Everybody wanted to come into town. Uh, There were people who were musicians who were moving here because it had the energy it had. And so there were all levels of shows. Why is Seattle's music the focus of an entire season of Seattle Growth podcast? Well, as the former director of the Office of Economic Development, Brian Surratt, noted in season two. Music is a big part of who we are. As we further explore this aspect of Seattle's DNA, today's episode paint a picture of a unique time in Seattle's history and provide insight into the city's music future. Now join me as I sit down with Ben London. I am here with Ben London, a singer-songwriter who's worked in the music and entertainment business for over 20 years. Uh, ben, thank you for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me. And I forgot to mention two-time guest on Seattle Growth That's Podcast right. Now. That's <laughs> right. That hopefully never becomes even your top 10 I'm claim to that, fame. I'm hoping that when I get to three, I get a coffee mug. Okay. <laughs> um, why don't you start by just telling me a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I've been actively involved in the Seattle music community since I arrived on the on the wonderful shores of Seattle, Washington in 1989. Uh, I was lucky enough to make records and tour uh, through most of the 90s as part of the sort of whole grunge thing. Um, I like to jokingly say that my band at the time is a footnote of flannel in that we were there, we, we rubbed shoulders, we did all the things that the other bands did except we did not sell millions of records the way that, that others did. But got to experience a lot of stuff and then from there transitioned, worked at a record label for a little while but then was lucky enough to get involved on the development team for Experience Music Project. And then from there, was an executive with the Grammys for about seven years and done business development for technology companies. And then the last bunch of years was a partner in a marketing company here in Seattle. So through, so through your various roles, you've had a fairly strong impact on the Seattle music industry. What are some of your proudest accomplishments? Well, I think uh, some of my proudest accomplishments was um, first when I arrived here of 
of getting my band together and getting signed to an independent label, going out and touring, doing all that stuff. Um, we sort of had a collective of a group of other bands, including Gits, Seven Year Bitch, and then friends like Gas Huffer and um, The Derelicts and Hammerbox and different folks like that. But we all lobbied together and put out our own compilation records when we started, toured. Um, so I was very proud of all that sort of stuff and the, being part of that. Um, then being on the team that helped develop Experience Music Project, doing a lot of the artifact acquisition and exhibit development, and then a lot of the public programs and being able to have that platform. We're very lucky that that Paul Allen has been so arts-focused in his philanthropy over the years, and I'm definitely a, a beneficiary of that. So very proud of that. I was proud of the work that I did with the, as an executive with the Grammys of using that national platform to support local causes and issues. We did a lot of work with candidates running for office, doing candidate forums, and integrating political discourse related to music um, and, uh, and the music industry, um, and really have gotten to a point where over the last 15 years, when candidates run for office, whether it be for city council or mayor, they really reach out and in, engage with the music community at this point, so that music has a seat at the table. Um, was also part of a group that helped get the Seattle Music Commission started. I was the inaugural chair of the commission and served for eight years and um, was proud and continue to be proud of the accomplishments. And those are both large and small. It's everything as a program like the busking that happens at the airport now at SeaTac, working with the port on that, and that those are paid uh, jobs for musicians that do the busking to creating the musician loading zones to making sure that when major infrastructure projects uh, projects like the redevelopment of the waterfront are happening, that there's somebody with a music perspective at that table uh, to make sure when they're uh, designing something that it actually will work for the things that they're designing it for. And then just my ongoing participation that I'm, you know, I am uh, 50 years old this year and I continue to make records and tour somewhat and, and play music and um, I'm glad that rock and roll or, or music has been a lifelong pursuit and not just something that I set down when I turned 30. And walk me through your life when you're breaking into the music scene here in Seattle in the 90s. What did you remember? What do you recall feeling, seeing? What What's most vivid about those early days here? Um, well, I feel I was very lucky because I moved to Seattle with a group of friends. Um, there was a bunch, several bands worth of people that all went to a, we all went to a little liberal arts college in Ohio called Antioch College, and we decided to move out here. This was before the whole grunge thing happened. I mean, it was just bubbling up, but before the whole national thing happened. So when we got here, I liked Seattle immediately. It kind of was like, a, it was still kind of had a little bit of a small town feel, um, as opposed to bigger cities I'd lived in, like New York or um, Chicago. And... Um, and that what was great about it really was that the community was very small, the people that were participating, almost to the point where there was a club on First Avenue called The Vogue that did sort of punk and rock and roll and stuff on Tuesday and Wednesday nights. And we would start going there when we first got to town to see the shows. And after going for a couple of weeks in a row, people started coming up to us and we're like, hey, we haven't seen you around here before. Are you from here? And just meeting people quickly and making friends. And, you know, the Comet Tavern on Capitol Hill was really almost like our like a like a common room for the music scene or something like that or our living room and so much of the sort of community building and the show building and the interesting thing was on those early years there was no sense that anybody was doing it other than because they loved it the 
the biggest aspiration was like maybe you could tour enough or do something to be able to not work a day job. There was no thoughts of getting rich or anything just because, you know, you got to remember that, you know, Nirvana knocked Michael Jackson off number, the top of the charts when that happened. There was the, what, musically what was happening had nothing to do with Paula Abdul and Michael Jackson and the things that were really big uh, at that moment. So it was a great time. Um, I think that as outsiders, because a lot of the sort of bigger grunge folks, you know, the the Mud Honeys and the Sound Gardens and um, Pearl Jam guys and all stuff, they all kind of grew up here and um, they kind of had an insular sort of scene with the sub pop folks as well um, that was a little more insular then. But we built our own community and then over time those communities merge and it's sort of like... Um, it's sort of like the opposite of cells where you have one cell and it divides and it divides. It's sort of like you have lots of little cells and then they connect and they connect into one big cell. So, um, you know, I know people have a lot of mixed feelings, but I thought it was a really exciting time. Um, we got a lot of opportunity that we probably would not have as a band had we not been here during that whole experience. And, uh, you know, this was the height of print media and everything as well. And it was really interesting, you know, that you'd be at the Crocodile on a Saturday night seeing a show and then with just hanging out with your friends and then like a month later a, mag, a music magazine would come out and there'd be like a two-page spread of pictures of people hanging out at the crocodile you know or, or things of that nature so it was a it was a interesting place and there was a lot of pride in the how well the seattle bands were doing and then a lot of sort of skepticism or worry of the all the bands from seattle doing so well so it was uh it was an interesting time. What do you see going on in today's Seattle music scene? Well, I think one of the great things about the Seattle music scene is that it continues to reinvent itself. Um, it's been very active. I mean, there's obviously the biggest media spotlight was on Seattle in the 90s when the whole grunge thing happened. But there's a long history here of people, you know, like Quincy Jones and Ernestine Anderson uh, in the Jackson Street jazz scene through to the garage rock of the Kingsmen and the Sonics in the 60s to the 70s with like Hart and people like that. And so uh, after the big grunge explosion happened, things have continued to go move on. And so obviously artists uh, like Death Gap for Cutie uh, um, have had had great success in the, in the aughts and labels like Sub Pop continue to grow and nurtured artists like... Um, uh, like the Postal Service and the Shins and, uh, you know, in recent history, uh, artists like Father John Misty that are doing incredibly well. Um, and then we've seen, uh, you know, not since Sir Mix-a-Lot had a sort of a commercial peak in the 90s, um, hip-hop, uh, Seattle hip-hop, come into the forefront with obviously with the large success that Macklemore's had over the last couple of years. Um, and what's been really great about that and watching his success is um, the fact that some of the sort of DIY origins of the Seattle music scene informed how he dealt with his own career. And he's really a, a cottage industry in and of himself because of his ownership of his, of his master recordings and everything to do with his own business. Is there a community of support from the people who've been in this industry for many years? Yeah, I, I'd say that there is a lot of support system. Um, uh, you know, and it's a variety of different things. I don't think you can point to any one specific thing, but first and foremost, live music is part of the culture of Seattle, or has been. Um, so that's important. Uh, things for younger artists to aspire to, places to play, uh, get getting played on the radio like KEXP or something like that. You've seen over the last 20 years, um, 
a variety of things go into place to support younger artists. Um, anything with like the community organizing that helped put the Vera Project together at the Seattle Center, which is a publicly funded community um, arts and music center that not only gives uh, young people uh, a place to aspire to play, but also teaches them skills. I think one of the things that's been interesting about being part of the Seattle music business is because of the isolation for a long time, there wasn't this sense of being waiting, waiting for the music, quote unquote, music industry to come scoop you out of obscurity. So there was a real sort of uh, do-it-yourself or DIY ethic, but that informed everything. And so a lot of people realized they couldn't just focus on just writing a song. They had to learn how to book their own shows or book their own tours or or um, how to market themselves and, and do all of those sorts of things. So that's continued to sort of grow. The other thing that's been really interesting is obviously um, we had the major uh, grunge explosion in the 90s, but most of the bands that really were successful, you know, your Soundgardens, your Nirvanas, your Pearl Jams, um, Alice in Chains, they all pretty much stayed in Seattle, and they that infrastructure that they built they were really generous in sharing that with younger bands of explaining how the major labels worked, um, about advising them in different ways. And so that's been really helpful. And I've seen generation to generation that people have been very, um, I think one of the interesting things, um, uh, Susie Tennant, who used to work for Geffen uh, when Nirvana was on the, uh, was in, was active. She worked with them quite a bit. She at one point said, you know, success is not a finite thing. So nobody can steal your success. And that's, I think, has informed people quite a bit, just that thought that it's okay to help each other. It's not like somebody's going to come along and take your record deal or do something to take away from you, whereas if you support each other and you help each other, it's more likely it's going to make everything better. One other thing that, um, that I'm very proud that, that uh, one of my proudest accomplishments was that when I was a curator of public programs at Experience Music Project before it was Mopop, I started a program called Sound Off There, which is a young people's music competition for people under 21. And unlike uh, Battle of the Bands, per se, there was a lot of educational components and community building components. And so it's going into the 17th or 18th year now. And we've seen a lot of bands that have used that as a springboard, either as an aspirational place of forming bands because they know that's something they can do when they're young. We've seen bands get signed to major labels out of that. We've seen people go to work in the industry from that. So I think it's just, there's no one thing. It's like you don't, you don't create a program or a, or a, or a community that, that does everything for somebody, but it's about giving people education and giving them things to be ambitious towards that allows them to kind of remold it and do what is most authentic to them. Because what's um, authentic to a musician that's, 18 today entering into Seattle or 21 or however that might be is a much different world and a much different experience than what I faced when I arrived here when I was 21. And as more money and people move into Seattle, what benefits do you see that bringing to the music community here? Well, I think as more people move to the region, it's potentially more audience, which is good. I think the interesting, uh, the interesting friction point that the growth in Seattle is facing right now is that any time you take an indigenous culture, for lack of a better term, which is the people that grew up in the Northwest, and you bring people from all over other parts of the world to live here, their interests and pursuits are different potentially than the people that live here. So as I said, live music has been an integral part of the Pacific Northwest for a long time, but if people grew up in another place where that was not the case, when they move here, they may have no interest in live music 
or the conversely, they may be like, wow, I never had access to this where I live before. I'm really excited about it. So either way, I think more people means more audience, which is good. More people is good because there's more people that will go to see things and support them. But the flip side is that the more people get here, the expense gets so high that it's harder for the creators to live here. So it would be awful if we became just a pure consumption economy when it comes to the arts. And so are there any other challenges that you're seeing as more money and people move into the city? Yeah, I mean, I think it really just comes down to to housing and location. You know, for a long time, Capitol Hill in Seattle was the heart and soul of the music community in many ways. And that's partially just because historically the artists and musicians and particularly the LGBTQ community are often the Johnny Appleseeds of gentrification. Uh, it's out of necessity. Usually they live in places where the rent is the cheapest and things, and they're willing to put up with with uh, neighborhoods and things that uh, that other people would maybe steer clear of. But because of the vibrancy that the artists and the musicians and the LGBTQ community and people of that uh, ilk um, bring, it ends up drawing in other people. So, you know, we kind of got what we deserved with where Capitol Hill is now is that we made it too nice and too appealing and then everybody came in and developed it and made it what it is. So I kind of feel like rather than lamenting what was, I know there's a lot of people like, well, I can't even live on Capitol Hill now. It's young people's job to go find what's next and not try to relive what we were doing in the 90s or whatever. And so I don't know if that's Burien or White Center or um, uh, Tacoma or, you know, a lot of people moved to Portland 10 years ago, that the artists and the musicians will find what's next. And that, you know, if I was to become a real estate developer, I would have a think tank somewhere of just asking these folks, where, where, where is it that, you know, I know you don't necessarily want to live there, but where are you living? And then, you know, all it takes is that. And then there's one coffee shop and then one bar and then some live music, and then so on and so on, you know. And then before you know it, it's uh, it's skys- it's uh, construction cranes and $8,000 a month studio apartments. Beyond housing affordability, are there any other major challenges facing the artists in the music community? Sure. Um, I mean, housing affordability is an issue, um, which is a Seattle issue or a big city issue these days. The other challenge is just that the music industry has evolved quite a bit over the last 20 years. Um, some ways for the better, some ways for the worse. Um, the biggest challenge these days is there's just not the same amount of money to be made in music. With the exception of playing live, and it takes a long time to build that audience, there's a lot of investment, both in sweat equity and money, that musicians have to put into developing their craft. And just because you work really hard and spend all the hours doesn't mean that people are going to like it. There's an intangible sort of pixie dust element of music. And so uh, we've been lucky that we seem to have, every couple of years, we have something that sticks its head above at a national level. And that's usually the manifestation of somebody that represents a larger sort of micro community of musicians here. And hopefully that will continue to happen. And um, it seems like things are trending in the right direction long term uh, with the industry in terms of compensation for streaming and things of that nature. So when that hits scale, there will potentially be more money again. Um, but it's a real sort of a chicken and egg and wait and see sort of thing right now. You've invested time into that intersection between music and politics. Over the years, would you say that the music community here in Seattle has thrived because of what the government has done or um, in spite of it or something in between? Well, I'd say that what the whole period of what Seattle is most known for um, was in spite of the government. There was a lot of stuff that happened in the 80s related to 
the teen dance ordinance, which was an ordinance they put into place that really didn't allow for people under 21 to view live music. There was a lot of uh, nimbyism and complaints about noise and all of these sorts of things that made it really hard. And so clubs were opening and closing, um, uh, things of that nature. And that it was only after the sort of mainstream success of these artists and that there was some actual business infrastructure that happened. And then um, in the run-up to forming the Music Commission, um, it was when we helped commission an uh, economic impact study that quantified the amount of money that that music brought into the local economy on a yearly basis and put it on basically on on uh, even with the maritime industry, all of a sudden many uh, elected leaders were like, oh, okay, this is a thing. And then also, it's just cultural changes, but uh, in a lot of ways, um, candidates, you know, this was also, you got to remember, this was the 90s, the whole rock the vote thing, Clinton. I got, there was all this sort of like, uh, disruption in politics and they started realizing that they needed to engage youth in a different way and so I think a lot of political candidates started viewing the music community as a way to connect with younger voters than they had traditionally and that this was also a period you know kind of pre the proliferation of the internet where you can make those connections now uh, from a marketing standpoint um, we were uh, in some ways uh, our community were more gatekeepers to those people any concluding thoughts on the past, present, and future of the music scene in our growing city? You know, Seattle has been a vibrant place. I hope it continues to be. I hope that with the amount of development that goes on, that we don't um, develop ourselves out of the music business. I think that it's there should be onus on the developers. There's been situations, particularly on Capitol Hill, take a club like Numos that's been there for if in different incarnations for 25 years or thereabouts they've been operating seven days a week for 25 years all of a sudden a new condo gets built down at the corner of the block and then they start getting noise complaints about what they've been doing for the last 25 years so i think that there needs to be onus on the developers that when they're moving into vibrant neighborhoods that they do their work to soundproof their units and things like that so that we can all cohabitate and these are partially just the um, growing pains of a city in transition as we grow into a more metropolitan and large city. I mean, New York's been dealing with these noise issues for years or things like that. So I think that those sort of issues are important to take into account. Obviously, I keep harping on affordability, like where, you know, musicians, um, they don't, they're not guaranteed wages. They're not guaranteed health care. I hope that we continue to find ways or that they find ways where they can still interact in the city. So if you live in Burien, you can still come to Seattle and play. But if the point gets that it's so expensive and everybody moves to Tucson or something like that, then we're just kind of stuck with whatever rolls through town. Ben, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time and perspective. Great. Thank you. Stay tuned until the end of this episode to hear music by Ben London's latest band, Stag which includes two-time Seattle Growth podcast guest and co-president of the well-known retailer Nordstrom, Pete Nordstrom, playing bass. But first, my next guest played a hand in the rise to prominence for many musical acts who he chose to play on his renowned Seattle radio show. His influence in shaping the global music scene from his DJ booth in Seattle is widely recognized, and he became the subject of a documentary, The Glamour and the Squalor. Now join me as I sit down with the legendary Marco Collins. 
I am here at the Uptown Espresso with Marco Collins, who is largely credited with being the first DJ to play Nirvana and also one of the first radio personality to have a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame exhibit. But he is here to bust both of those myths in just a moment. Marco, thank you for joining me today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'm not even inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm in a in the museum as a notable DJ from the Northwest. But even before me, Pat O'Day is in the same exhibit, and he's an infamous DJ here, you know, helped break uh, Hendrix and, and a lot of the bands from that era. So no, like it's so many, so many different stories about that. Um, but I am in an exhibit that is, focuses on, you know, different parts of the states and who are the DJs that really have kind of set the tone for that era. And the other, the other correction, what was the other thing that you First said? First DJ to play Nirvana on the radio. That, that's not true either. Uh, yeah, all lies. But my movie actually did say that. <laughs> you know, so um, no. And it depends on what you mean by the first person. Do you mean the first person that played the Nevermind record when the band blew up? Or do you mean the first person ever to play that band on the radio? Because that record, you know, was Nevermind was their second record. So there were tons of people that played the first record before me. So any chance that I can get to correct these, you know, these sort of folklore. Yes. And you are largely credited with being a very key figure in a key point in musical history based right here in Seattle. Take us back to those days. What was it like being an important person in the music industry, in the music community? Well, that didn't happen overnight, and that certainly didn't happen when I got here. I was a nobody when I got here. And, you know, I was just a, a kid from Southern California that was very passionate about the music scene here and also was in radio. I had worked in radio for years and years and years in San Diego. And uh, I left to go work at a record label. And I did that for about six to nine months, not even a full year. And my old station called me and said, we're starting this new thing in Seattle. We know you love Mud Honey. We know you love Nirvana. And I had become friends with the Soundgarden guys at that point. And so they were like, you want to go start this thing? And I just remember thinking at that point in my life, I would do anything. I was following the career. so wherever I needed to go, but I thought it was amazing that I could go to a city that I loved the music coming out. And I was a sub pop singles club member and I was just very passionate about what the music scene was. And I got on a plane with all my stuff and bam, moved into a hotel for like a month till I got a place to live. So I wasn't, you know, when we started, the station was just a little engine that could like we, we just poured all of our time and energy into making that thing bigger and embracing the community. And I'd say that, you know, we really started seeing results, probably the biggest results four years later. So it was 94, 95 before we really sort of blew up. And that, you know, when a station blows up, the personalities also blow up and because my boss was not interested in dealing with record labels. I dealt with all the labels myself. So I made some calls that uh, ended up paying off for the radio station and, you know, and I guess me, you know, personally as well. So let's talk about some of those calls that you made. 
Well, I mean, so at the time, radio was not as constricted as it is now. Um, you could make your own choices on the music. And I always felt that the strongest suit when you have a company like that is to wrap your arms around the community, give the station to the community, make it a part of the community, make it a part of the, you know, the landscape, as it were. And so I worked really hard on that for four years. And um, it paid off. I mean, we added local bands, lots of local bands. I was up on Capitol Hill and Sean Nelson, the singer-songwriter from the band, Harvey Danger, also a music editor uh, at The Stranger. Like, I had a, a loft right across from The Stranger. And he just walked his CD over and, you know, I put the song on the air and it took off and... They got a deal and everything blew up. So we were able, because I had that freedom, because the company trusted in me, um, I took some risks and played stuff that I thought could happen. Uh, And it did. And I was lucky. It was the perfect storm, really, because the scene was blowing up. Like, everything in Seattle was blowing up. So our megaphone was even louder than most stations would have been. So if I added something to the playlist that people around the country didn't know. I'd get calls, you know, from people, labels and other stations wondering if I could send it to them so they could also play it. And so we broke bands, you know, nationally. We had an influence and uh, it was fantastic, man. It was really, really fantastic. What did it feel like to be somebody that people around the country are trying to know what should we do? You know, what, what did it feel like to have that kind of influence? I mean, it felt good. You know, everything felt to me, I I don't think I ever looked at it like, wow, this, this is fantastic. You know, we've got power or I've got power. It wasn't that. It was stay focused on what you're doing because that's the only way you're going to be successful. If you're worried about all of the din over here, you're not going to be focused on your own city. Um, Because there was probably a moment that I thought, Okay. Well, and no, actually, there was there were several moments that I was like, grunge is over. Now, what are we going to play? We can keep playing these second-rate grunge bands. You know, Bush, who I love. You know, Gavin and I are still very good friends. But they were after the fact, live, Stone Temple Pilots. They weren't the first wave of grunge. So, to me, you know, it was starting to get watered down, right? And I felt like I needed to find something else that as an alternative radio station, you can't just play what the labels are force feeding you. You've got to sort of step out a little further and find those little gems that you can make into something. So it was nice to have that power. It was nice to have that megaphone. So going back before you moved to Seattle, you had already been hearing about Seattle. Oh yeah, it was already a big deal. I mean, so when I was in college, um, I was the music director of my college radio station. And I also was... I did the specialty new music show on the alternative commercial station in San Diego. Mudhoney was huge. I remember going to see Mudhoney in San Diego, and we thought that they were the next coming of Christ. Like, it was... So there were different waves. This is what's interesting to me that people don't understand. Seattle was a buzz in the 80s, into the 80s, um, into the 90s. Like, before Nevermind and Pearl... Or 10 came out... 
Seattle was already abuzz with the college kids. Like that, they already knew what was up. College radio embraced Superfuzz, Big Moth, and Bleach because they were both very noisy, raw, and ultra mega okay by Soundgarden because it was a sound that was like very raw, very punk rock, you know? Um, and I remember thinking, Mudhoney, I'm gonna go to this Mudhoney show and I might get, I might, you know, get a broken nose. I mean, that's, it's just dangerous. I just remember thinking, this is so dangerous. I can't wait to get there. Um, and I honestly, when I got to Seattle, I honestly thought that Nerv or, uh, Mud Honey was gonna be the next band to break out of here. I thought long before Nirvana, long before Pearl Jam, it's gonna be Mud Honey. And I was wrong. But yeah, I was already a fan because I had already played all these records on the college radio station and the, the new music show. So I got up here, hell yeah, I was already a fan. When I got off the plane, I just remember, ah, I'm here. And the first thing I remember, we came into the city and I saw the Space Needle and I was like, wow, you're here. I saw that in videos, like Mud Honey videos, like, you know, um, and, and then I started no noticing how different the clothing looked. You know, I was in Southern California where pinks and bright blues and yellows are popular. Up here, it's all earthy tones and, you know, everything's dark and people are wearing black. And I'm like, yeah, I'm home. I'm home. So describe what the music community was like. Really tight knit in the beginning. So it felt to me, it never felt like it was as big as it was. We knew it was big. We saw MTV talking about it. We... We didn't have the internet. <laughs> the internet didn't happen until like the end of the 90s. So we saw what was going on by reading magazines, newspapers, and watching you know stores start to carry grunge wear. Um, but here it just felt small. Everything, everybody knew everybody. I remember going to a party. So Nils Bernstein lived on Capitol Hill. And Nils was uh, the guy that ran the Nirvana fan club and one of Kurt's best friends. And so I had become friends with Nils and I remember going over to Nils house. One of the first, maybe I was here a month and we were going to go out and play uh, soccer in a muddy, muddy field. And I think the mud honey guys were coming. I think Noah Selleck might've been there from Nirvana. And I just remember we all got back and we're drinking beer and just wet and muddy. And, and I just remember looking around the room going, these are all the biggest rock stars in this town right now. Like, and we're just playing kickball. That's what it was. It wasn't even soccer, dude. We were playing kickball in a field with beers, you know, getting drunk. And it just felt like, it didn't feel like a scene that everybody knew each other. Everybody was friends. Everybody partied at Nils. Everybody, you know, went to shows. There was like a, a group of people that all hung out. And it was based on the hill, basically, but it just felt tight-knit. Like, when things started getting big, it was really surreal. Especially to me, because maybe I had a little bit more contact with the outside world because of what I did for a living. I've got labels sending me stuff, um, magazines sending me stuff from England, and I'm seeing it firsthand. Um, so, and then walking into a club, and it's still all the regular characters. But one of the most surreal moments that I had was when Nirvana played Saturday Night Live for the first time. And I know this resonates with a lot of people because I've heard so many people tell the same story or a very similar story that 
So I was over at Nils, and at that point, because Nirvana had gotten so big, Nils' house, he got all the mail. So he got all the Nirvana fan club letters from all over the world, Japan, everywhere. So the corner of his friggin' apartment was filled up, like three feet deep. And so we would get drunk and jump in the letters, and we'd open them. And, but I just remember thinking, okay, that by itself is pretty surreal because you realize how big something's got internationally. But then we all sat down, and everybody's rowdy, out of control. We sat down to watch this performance. And when it was done, the whole room was silent. And... God, I'm getting chills even talking about it right now because it was a moment that we all knew something massive is going on and we had no idea until we saw that performance. It was just this, this is larger than life and these are our friends. I don't know, man. It just, it's hard for me to really pinpoint, but it was just a feeling of we're in the middle of a whirlwind you know there's a tornado coming and we're in the middle of it so it feels quiet still but it's about to hit and it was like it was an amazing time man it was amazing but still it always felt like home what were some of the performance venues that you recall either your friends playing in or you going to see them as this is building um i mean the crocodile's been there for for forever the okay hotel um rock candy yeah, I mean, I saw a million brilliant shows. For somebody who maybe lived in a different part of the country but remembers this time in musical history and was yeah. touched by some of the bands that came through your radio station, and they want to know what it's like to be on the inside. You know, I, I just remember thinking, I'm not trying to make this station my own personal jukebox. I knew what I liked. And at one point when the grunge thing was, it felt old, it felt rehashed. You know, we're getting these third-rate bands coming out. I had kind of moved on to, I, there was this whole indie rock thing that was going on with pavement and, and a lot of real sludgy, good pop that was happening. So that was my new thing that I was really into. The Get Up Kids, Super Chunk, Poster Children, um, you know, bands like that. And then I wasn't really seeing any of those bands got, get big. And I went to London and... I met with a record label over there and they treated, I went with a girlfriend of mine who worked as the music director of another huge station and they just treated us like we were, it was unbelievable how they treated us, but we ended up at a rave dancing all night long. And I remember thinking I was in the pit at what or in the pit. See, I was on the dance floor and I remember being there thinking this feels exactly like being in the pit of a grunge show like it felt the same thing it felt the euphoric feeling the you know just ultimate there's just something that happens and i thought this can translate electronic music can translate so i had this big vision that electronic music could be huge in the u.s i had i got a lot of flack for trying to bring uh electronic music to seattle but I remember we flew Prodigy over to um, close out Enfest. 
and uh, they hadn't done a major tour in America ever. This was they they flew in for two dates, our date, and then I think they maybe put them on in Portland. And I kept promising everybody, this is going to be the biggest thing. You guys are going to, this is the next big thing. You've got to trust me. And tons of industry people from all over the country flew up too, because now they want to see what's going on. They want to see what's happening. So all these magazines are up and, um, you know, we've given them all backstage passes. We're treating everybody really well. We're acting as our own press team because we know the effect that we can have on stuff. So I just remember before they, I think No Doubt was before them. So after No Doubt, like the crowd is leaving. I can literally see 15,000 people leaving because nobody knows who the prodigy are. And I just remember being like on stage and going, give me a live mic, give me a live mic. And I just, I ran out and just said, stop, everybody stop. And I just was like, just listen to me for one minute. And I literally pleaded with the crowd not to leave, to just trust me and stay for 20 more minutes. And if they didn't, if they weren't feeling it on the first song, go home, but trust me. And I kept saying, if you leave now, you're gonna regret it Monday morning when everybody is talking about it and you missed it. And they came out and at first the crowd didn't know what to expect. And then it erupted into one of the most amazing, just for the first time you could see that electronic music could translate to a grunge crowd. Kids were like moshing, kids were going nuts. And all the magazines are like, taking notes and I'm like this is fantastic and so that one moment was credited as being a let's move forward moment I guess I'm just illustrating a moment that it just felt like we're having a massive effect on the rest of the world by what we're doing and I was really proud of that man and so let me ask you as you knew Seattle when you were in San Diego you were a big part of Seattle as it got on the map and made a big splash worldwide. What is Seattle's soul of the music community? How would you describe what has kind of stayed the same through those years and beyond? It's a really good question framed like that. I never looked at the grunge thing as being any different. I never looked at 91 as being any different than any other year that I've been here. Because in my mind, we still have all these great bands here. And we have like 10 other people that I think should be signed right now, if there were record labels left, that I think, you know, could potentially take off and become a much bigger deal. You know, the arts are honored here and the arts are supported here. And, um, you know, to me, I guess that's the common thread. Art, music, dance, film, Seattle is, is a huge supporter of the arts, and I think that's why music stays alive here. You know, the trends may come and go. We thought we were, you know, hip-hop was about to blow up out of here several years back. I don't know that there's any significant trends going on right now, but I think the, the common thread is just the support of the arts, the love of the arts in this city. People embrace the arts. And with more money and people moving in in these last six years than ever before. What do you see f for the future of the music community here in Seattle? I think it's going to survive no matter what. There's, you know, obviously there's some concern in the community that some of the big tech companies are driving the artists out. 
I don't think that's ever going to happen. And I, I think the artists may move to different areas. I think Georgetown is becoming very vibrant. I even see White Center starting to become that sort of gritty artistic community growing there as well. Tacoma, another place where I think the arts are um, starting to grow. I don't think any of the tech companies, you know, any of the, the fears people have of people being driven out of certain areas. I don't think that's ever going to happen. I think the that there's too strong a, a love, again, for the arts. I do know that oftentimes the the artistic community responds to things like, you know, big business coming in. It responds and it reacts to it. So sometimes when things are beat down, they tend to strike back even more powerfully. You know, I've been to a million cities and this one just feels the most vibrant to me. It's very different than it used to be. If you go into Belltown, things are just very different. There used to be speakeasies everywhere where Alcohol was sold all night long and bands played, and, you know. Pioneer Square was insane back in the day, the kind of stuff that went on there. Um, and not as much of that stuff is going on there, but to me that doesn't, it's not really reflective of um, where things could go in this city. As the city is transforming, if you could put your own stamp and shift it in a certain direction, what would... What would you do? I would urge these tech companies to put money into the arts. Like embrace the arts in this city. This is the city of music and film. I urge all these tech companies with, you know, these folks with salaries that are through the roofs to, you know, invest in, invest in the music, invest in the art. You know, I guess I would just say be very cognizant of what's going on here and the strength and the power that music and art has in this town. And uh, invest in it, wrap your arms around it. And so what do you think Seattle needs to do as a community to help the next Macklemore, the next Nirvana, the next Pearl Jam, help these people who are working in the, in the clubs become the next big thing? The one thing I'll say that, that I don't think radio does anymore, invest in artists invest long-term in an artist's career. And I guess that could be, you know, any, you know, newspapers or whatever, invest in people's careers. Don't beat them down, hold them up. This town tends to have a, uh, they like you, they love you until you get too big. And then when you're too big, everybody hates you here. That's just how it goes. And uh, I wish there was less of that. I wish there was more support all the way around, you know. Any concluding thoughts? No, this was fun. Thanks for having me be a part of it. Marco, thank you for joining me. I appreciate your time and perspective today. Thank you very much. That is all for today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast. Have an opinion to share on the past, present, or future of Seattle's music? Reach out to me on Twitter, at Prof Shulman, or post to the Seattle Growth Podcast Facebook page. I love hearing your thoughts on Seattle. Join me next week as we broaden the look at Seattle's rich musical history. You'll hear from Janie Hendricks, CEO of Experience Hendricks, the multi-million dollar company that manages the music of Seattle-born rock and roll legend Jimi Hendrix. Jimi's been gone since 1970, and uh, there were a lot of fans that uh, are still alive today. 
You'll also hear from an inaugural member of the Seattle Music Commission, Devon Manier. When I think Seattle hip hop, I mean, I tend to, I tend to go to an era personally, you know, when I was in my twenties, you know, I just think about as the golden era, you know, the, the, the mid nineties were just a sweet time before that was an interesting time because that's the birth of it. After that was more when I was involved as a, a, you know, in business. And then now just as this hip hop scene everywhere, it's oversaturated in my opinion, you know, subscribe to Seattle growth podcast in iTunes. So you don't miss a single episode. Now, before we get to music by today's guest, Ben London, I want to thank the outstanding set of people who were generous enough to lend their voices to this project. I also want to thank the University of Washington's News and Information Office, notably Victor Balta, Peter Kelly, Rebecca Gorley, and Michelle Ma, and the Foster School of Business blog duo, Ed Cromer and Mike Bosey, for helping to spread the word about Seattle Growth Podcast. Now, to close out this episode, enjoy the song Pictures, by the band Stag from their Midtown Sizzler album. For more information on the band, visit www.themightystag.com. Until next time, I'm Jeff Shulman, and I thank you for joining me on this journey of Seattle Growth Podcast. See your face come into view. A single frame at high altitude One second of one day